Welcome to the FemiPod. These are conversations about females for everyone to listen to, learn from and engage with. Brought to you by your Femi founders, Esther Kewen and myself, Lydia O'Donnell. Today we welcome back to the pod our incredible Femi endocrinologist, Dr. Izzy Smith. Dr. Izzy is an Australian-based doctor working in endocrinology and has a passion for sharing health advice that is simple and easy to understand. If you haven't listened to our first episode with Dr. Izzy, I would highly recommend to go back and listen to that episode first, and that's episode number seven. We spoke to Dr. Izzy about many medical topics around female hormone health, but today we're going to dive deeper into the importance of education and awareness of female physiology, more recent research that has been carried out on females, and what can be done better for females to not only be thriving in sport, but in life away from sport too. Dr. Izzy, welcome back to the pod. Where in the world are you right now and how are you? Thank you. I am in Havar in Croatia, which is a little island off the coast of Havar and it is like a tropical paradise, but I'm heading home tomorrow. (laughs) Um, And I'm really excited to do this podcast episode. I feel like there's so much to discuss, um, way too much to put on one episode. So yeah, I'm excited to be back and dive a bit more into the evidence on menstrual cycle tracking and you know performance uh so yeah thanks Izzy yeah we're so excited to have you back and uh, we're as always very grateful for your time and so we wanted to start off with talking about the latest research trends on menstrual cycle training and the fads that are going on at the moment I think we've kind of chatted about the uh, movement that's happening on TikTok around menstrual cycle training and tracking um what's your opinion on this big uptake of training to the menstrual cycle and like do you want to touch on what we do stand for at Femi? So I think first, important to understand the principles of what training to your menstrual cycle is. So really, we're looking at the impact of different levels of estrogen and progesterone and how that might impact the female athlete, because really that is the variable that changes throughout a menstrual cycle. In the first half of our menstrual cycle, we have high levels of estrogen and no progesterone. In the second half of the cycle, we have more progesterone and some estrogen. We know hormones work like a lock and a key where the hormone acts on a receptor on our cells, which is the lock and the hormone is the key. Now, we are all uniquely different in that we all have variable amounts of estrogen receptors in different parts of our body and they're everywhere, you know, our brains, our muscles, our bones. So estrogen impacts our whole body. But then as well as having variation in the quantity and quality of our receptors, it also can have a different impact of how estrogen, you know, then impacts our body. And if you think about things like PMS, puberty, menopause, women have uniquely different experiences, which really demonstrates that our hormones can impact us, you know, from person to person. So really menstrual cycle tracking is then looking at that variation in estrogen and progesterone and how it impacts the individual at different parts of their cycle. And these hormones impact other hormones. We know estrogen increases, um, you know, growth hormone, progesterone impacts our fluid balance and so does estrogen. So there's lots of different variables, um, but it's mainly estrogen and progesterone, which is like the starting, the starting, the main, you know, the starting variable, which, you know, has all the impacts. Now, In terms of menstrual cycle training and tracking and the latest research and trends, there's lots of research, but not very good quality research. And 
And the main things that people talk about is really simplified is often people feel better or might train better in their first half of the cycle where it's estrogen alone. Um, in the second half of the cycle where there's progesterone, which increases our core body temperature and has some other effects, might not train as well. And that's where, you know, and people are making some very simplified statements about the menstrual cycle, making it very like, well, you're good here and you're bad there, which is not what evidence shows. Really, when we look at the evidence, the most evidence would show that we might perform our best in our um, late follicular phase, so the first half of the cycle when estrogen is high. Um, and if we think about the impacts of estrogen, it increases our glucose uptake. It has, you know, an anabolic effect on our muscle tissues. Um, so it would make sense that maybe that first half of the cycle would be beneficial for performance. And there is some, you know, research that is supporting this. In terms of the latest research, there was a meta-analysis a couple of years ago by someone called, um, I think it's Kirsty or Kelly McNulty um, in the UK. And really, and a meta-analysis is where they look at heaps of different studies on one question, and then they put all of that data together and they try and see if there's a trend. Now, her, the meta-analysis, it mainly showed that there was, you know, potentially decreased performance in the early follicular, so, you know, when someone's got their period. However, there was so much variation in study results. And I, I don't know if anyone listening is this as like a science background or they're at university but my, you know, my supervisor who, you know, supervises me in research, he says in meta-analysis, if you put crap in, you put crap out. So if we've got lots of kind of crappy, poorly designed studies, and this is really hard to design, you know, you're getting people just maybe tracking their cycle on an app rather than doing blood tests and really accurately knowing what part of their cycle they're in, or you're only looking at it for one month. You know, the best way to do this would be a year-long study where you're taking people's bloods all the time, but no one's going to want to do this. It would cost heaps. It would be really hard to design. But I think the outcome of that meta-analysis was, you know, lots of not very good quality studies showed mixed results. And you could take that different ways. You could say, okay, there's really mixed results. One, there's, there's no impact of menstrual cycle. You could then say, no, maybe there's a lot of individual variation. Um, or three, you could say, these are crappy studies and it doesn't really say anything. I reckon it's probably a little bit of a mix of all three of them. Um, and, you know, that there is individual variation, but we do need better designed studies um, to gain more answers. So that was, you know, that's the biggest, I would say, kind of research in this area. There was also a recent study at the AIS by one of my friends who's a sports doctor, Alice, um, and she's a ex, you know, elite rower herself. And she did a survey of athletes, which kind of supported what we think the evidence would show um, that athletes, you know, they felt they trained better in that, you know, late follicular phase, you know, like a, a few days or a week after their period. Then that's more about performance, but then there's also research now looking at strength training. And there's been some, in, and I really actually think if we're going to see the most impact of training and performance, it's probably going to be of menstrual cycle. It's probably going to be strength training and where we get the benefit from. Um, because when we think about the impacts of estrogen versus progesterone on muscle tissue, it would make sense that training in that follicular phase, we might get more gains, gains spelt with a Z, like G-A-I-N-Z. Um, that's me making a bad joke. I'm just trying to lighten up all this science. Um, and there has been some European data showing if we train, you know, strength-wise to our cycle that we're doing harder, heavier strength training in the follicular phase where we've got lots of estrogen, which really supports muscle tissue growth, and then take the luteal phase as, you know, a little bit more recovery, that that 
has got evidence for improving, um, you know, strength training and performance. So that's a really short, simplified review of where we're at in terms of the evidence. Yeah, a brilliant, brilliant summary. But I, I think you kind of covered it a little bit about like what we stand by at Femi. I think it's just more like you said, really acknowledging that individuality and that every woman's different. And do you agree with that? Yeah, I think empowering the female athletes to learn about their body I understand that there is some science and evidence that would support we might train better in our follicular, especially our late follicular phase or maybe our early luteal phase when progesterone hasn't started to really climb. However, there is individual variation and they need to take that information but also understand that, you know, they're individual and they shouldn't feel, oh, no, I'm in my luteal phase, I might train terribly if they're actually, you know, training quite well. And I think that's the trends that we are seeing. We're seeing people in social media and, you know, so everyone's always after the new trend to make money. So, you know, there's personal trainers with, you know, maybe that haven't done a university degree. They've done an eight week course and they know a little bit about menstrual cycles. So now they're making these very specific training programs and telling women like, you'll be good here, you'll be bad there. And, you know, that's not helpful for people. It's not empowering. And I keep seeing some incorrect information on social media. There's keeps being this, plasma volume is reduced by 8% in the luteal phase. And there's just not the research to, you know, back that up. Um, So I think that's where it's getting a bad name that people are going, there's no evidence to support this. You know, this is incorrect. This is just a fad. And I don't think it's just a fad, but I think some people are making exaggerated claims and for our own personal business perspective to model it. Um, And that's, you know, not great because it's actually letting women down rather than empowering them to know about their own body. That's so true. Yeah, that's why we're so lucky to have people like you that, you know, debunk these these things. And I'm sure you probably see it a fair bit, like as a medical professional on social media. But what is your take on other people who aren't medical professionals, you know, giving out advice? And you probably see it a fair bit where it's actually not right. You know, like how does that really annoy you? Um, I think a lot of that also comes from the medical system letting people down. So I think doctors need to be gracious about seeing misinformation because people are wanting information and maybe not getting it from the medical system or normal healthcare system. So that's what they're going out for. And, you know, now this social media generation of, you know, social media businesses, people, you know, the more crazy and exaggerated something is, the more attention it will get. And so it's this perfect recipe for really big outrageous claims. So I've been doing social media stuff for a few years now, so I'm not really surprised by incorrect information anymore. Um, But I do think it needs to be discussed and talked about because ultimately it's the consumer who gets let down. Mm, And I think a lot of that like incorrect information that's being put out there is because there has been a huge lack of education around female physiology. So can you share with the listeners and how this has kind of impacted the medical world we live in? And even your own experiences, like this lack of education, how it's affected you with your own body? Yeah, so I think firstly I'll say medicine is ginormously large and I think we have unrealistic expectations on GPs to be specialists in every field and to bulk bill and do all of this in a 10-minute appointment. So um, I have a lot of pride for my medical industry and I think sometimes there is unfair expectations put on them. In saying that, women have been let down by medicine for hundreds of years. It has been a very male-focused type of care. Female health issues 
are notoriously poorly researched and poorly funded. I think endometriosis and polycystic ovarian syndrome are classic examples of that. And for, you know, menstrual cycle stuff, it's not well taught, you know, in university. I think it is quite specialised. And unfortunately, I think because access and, you know, even affordability to see a specialist can be quite hard when something's not life or limb threatening, you know, maybe doctors don't say, oh, you better go see an endocrinologist because I don't really know how to deal with this problem. It's like, oh, she's just not getting her periods. It's not that serious. And that's an education thing that doctors need to be better informed. Um, from my own personal experience, I had reds and I had amenorrhea and I saw a gynecologist, which I look back now and I think a gynecologist is the wrong person to see if you have amenorrhea because their focus is more on fertility and their, their focus isn't like bone health and um, the impacts of hormones. They're more kind of, you know, conditions and fertility. And I saw a gynecologist, I was told, you've got something called functional hypothalamic amenorrhea, uh, you might need help to get pregnant. That's it. There was no discussion of, you know, what's caused this, topical estrogen. So I think medicine maybe is, you know, it's sick care. It's treating someone when they've got a disease and making sure they're not seriously ill, but it's often not health care. It's not optimising. And that's hypothalamic amenorrhea is a classic example. You're told, okay, you've got nothing serious and if you want to have a baby, see us later. And I think that's where organisers like Femi and what we're doing is so great because we are educating, you know, hopefully other doctors as well about the, you know, serious impacts of functional hypothalamic amenorrhea, especially with bone health and other things, which is all on Femi theory. Um, But, yeah, so why, you know, there is this lack of kind of understanding and research about women's health is, you know, to some degree historical, also how the healthcare system is structured, and that, yeah, that we need to get more um, attention to, you know, female athletes' health as well. Yeah, definitely. And do you think you could briefly just, if anyone missed our first episode, episode seven with Dr. Izzy, just quickly describe what reads in. So, so essentially relative, so functional hypothalamic amenorrhea is a part of REDS, but it is not the same thing. So REDS is relative energy deficiency syndrome and it's your body responding to chronic energy deficiency in order to preserve energy, you know, essentially it's your body trying to, you know, prevent starvation. So it, it turns off or turns down organ systems to preserve energy. It turns off reproduction by stopping the messages to your ovaries because your body, it would not be a good time to, you know, have a pregnancy. It decreases your immune system. It also decreases, you know, other, your thyroid function to decrease your metabolism. So it's really your body kind of going into low battery mode to try and survive on this low energy. Um, It has lots of complications, but the most obvious and kind of first clinically apparent one is bone health. So, you know, you're much more likely to get stress fractures because estrogen is important for keeping our bones nice and strong. You're more likely to get osteoporosis down the track. You're more likely to get coughs, cold, poor injury, poor recovery from your training because of, you know, you've got less growth hormone, less thyroid function, thyroid hormones. Um, And then also in terms of, you know, your training itself, you know, your body's not fueled. So you can't, you know, train as well as you normally would. So it really is a multi-system condition. And, and one part of that is the functional hypothalamic amenorrhea. And the word functional hypothalamic, it's functional because it's not actually a specific disease. It's not like you've got a, you know, a tumour on your ovary or your pituitary or something. It's your body functionally responding to what's happening. And the hypothalamic is that it's from the hypothalamus, which 
sorry, that's part of your brain that controls your ovaries and it's, you know, turning off there. So um, it's a part of, you know, REDS and it, it generally demonstrates quite prolonged REDS that you've probably been in energy deficit for at least a few months. Um, and something I talk about heat is that it's not, you know, you can get it at all body sizes. You don't need to be really lean. I had REDS when I weighed more than what I do now. Um, so it's definitely not just a weight thing. Um, it's that energy deficit. Yeah, I was the same. I think I weighed maybe five kilos more than what I weigh now. And that's when I uh, lost my cycle through and was suffering from reds. And it's it's definitely like I looked completely different. And from the outset, you would have never thought that I was had something wrong with me or was, you know, suffering disordered eating because I didn't look like that typical disordered eating patient. Mm. But um, yeah. And the worst thing is someone might go to the doctor and they go, oh, you're not that thin. Like you're fine. And that literally is just going to fuel that person to think like, okay, I need to lose more weight. And it's just so, and that's what happened to me. Like they're like, oh, you know that thing, you shouldn't be losing your periods. Um, and that's where this education is so, so important. And I really hope a lot of doctors do do Femi Theory because, you know, even there was stuff that I learned from, you know, researching for the Femi Theory and yes. Yeah, we'll go into a bit more information about Femi Theory soon. But before we get there, we really wanted to debunk some of these common myths with you that are floating around, I guess, the female athletes base or even just, you know, the world that we've grown up in. So we'll throw the myths at you and then we'd love to hear your take on each of them. So the first one is the pill will help you get your menstrual cycle back if you're suffering reds. So a first a 30 second lesson on how the pill works. So the pill is like a synthetic estrogen and progesterone. Um, and it impacts the normal feedback system with our brain, the hypothalamus, and it turns off messages to the ovaries. So it looks almost like a similar pattern to the functional hypothalamic amenorrhea. So it's suppressing those messages because the body's getting your normal hormones through the tablet. So it's saying the ovaries, you don't need to make any hormones. So in functional hypothalamic amenorrhea, it's all about trying to get those, the LH and FSH, which is the hormones from the brains, to come back up. And the pill is doing the exact opposite. It's going to suppress them. So the pill is not going to help you get your natural cycles back at all. And also now we have you know, evidence that demonstrates treating functional hypothalamic amenorrhea with the pill um, does not improve bone density. And that's probably because the most estrogens, the estrogen in most pills is a slightly different molecular structure to our natural estrogen. There are some new pills actually um, so our natural estrogen is called 17 beta estradiol. Um, and there are some oral pills now that have that, but even, you know, we don't treat, we don't treat, we don't treat hypothalamic amenorrhea with a pill. Um, but it might be because you've got a different molecular structure. If we want to protect someone's bone health, um, when they've got functional hypothalamic amenorrhea, um, we give topical estrogen at an amount that will not suppress those hormones to return. So that LH and the FSH. And if I had a patient with functional hypothalamic amenorrhea who had a stress fracture or a normal fracture or had quite significantly reduced bone density, I would want her to be on topical estrogen for bone protection because it's going to one, support the bones like the pill wouldn't. And two, it's not going to prevent um, the you know, hypothalamic pituitary axis, the LH and FSH returning. So long story, that was a myth. We do not treat functional hypothalamic with the pill. It's actually the exact opposite of what someone needs. And just to clarify, and you can um, sum this up really quickly. So if you were to be put on the pill and you get a bleed, it's not actually a period, right? So you still have, or you could still be in reds. Oh, 100%. You're not ovulating. 
So normally a, a period happens because we ovulate and we have the estrogen and the progesterone. Well, the estrogen stimulates the lining of the endometrium to make it favorable for a egg to, or an embryo to implant. But if um, that doesn't happen, the hormone levels drop and we have the lining of our uterus fall away and there's a bleed. Um, when we take the pill, we haven't ovulated and it's just because if we stop the progesterone, um, that lining will fall away naturally. So yeah, no, it's, it's a period is evidence that you've ovulated, but when you take it on the pill, it's not, you know, it's induced from stopping the tablet. So no, it's definitely not, um, you know, showing that you've got normal, that you're not in reds. Cool. Thanks, Izzy. And then I think we touched on this a little bit before, uh, but if you are lean and active, it is normal to lose your menstrual cycle. A little bit like what we were just talking about with, you know, Lid saying she's leaner now than she was when she had um, functional, you know, hypothalamic amenorrhea in reds, um, but she's got, you know, regular cycles. So no, it is completely not normal. And this still, unfortunately, sometimes comes from the medical system. Um, that, oh, you're an athlete. This is normal. And it's so important to really talk about that common is not normal. You know, depression is common, but that doesn't mean it's normal. You know, other conditions might be common, but that doesn't mean it's normal and shouldn't be treated. So, you know, there's different studies, but, you know, maybe around 40, 50% of elite um, athletes like runners used to get reds. And so people, you know, mistakenly thought that was normal or even, you know, even worse, they thought, oh, this means you're training well. But yeah, that's not the case. And all athletes should be really wanting to maintain their normal menstrual cycles. Love that. Uh, the next one is, it is normal to suffer severe period pain. Yeah, so period, so normal period, in inverted commas, normal um, period pain is from little chemicals, um, prostaglandins that help that lining of the uterus, you know, fall away. My rule is if you need to take more than Panadol, or you're still getting period pain after kind of day two of your cycle, so day two of your period, that's not normal. And people should not be missing school. They should not be missing work. They should not be able to like have their normal life, you know, significantly impacted from their um, period pain. Um, and, you know, endometriosis occurs in one in nine women. And I say, if you know, you meet any of those criteria that you're still having period pain on day three, you need more than Panadol, or it's, you know, you can't go to work because of your symptoms, you know, you really need to be screened for endometriosis. And I think, you know, we have this expectation in society of women to endure and suffer. You know, we expect women to go through childbirth without pain relief. We expect them to go to work even though they've not had any sleep because they've been looking after a baby. And I don't know where this culture has come from, um, but I think period pain is the same as, you know, you should just kind of put up and deal with it and you shouldn't. Um, and it can be endometriosis and untreated endometriosis can, you know, cause, you know, especially problems with fertility, um, but other, you know, complications in that pelvic area. So um, if you, you know, you meet those symptoms, you should get it checked out. See a, and that's when you should see a gynecologist because they're, you know, the expert and, you know, someone, they might need to do a laparoscopic surgery to diagnose it, but you might not necessarily need that surgery, but you should at least, you know, chat with someone who's experienced with endometriosis. Awesome advice. Uh, myth number four, we've got the keto diet and fasting for females is a beneficial way to lose weight. Oh God, I was at a conference recently and they were doing this talk on the impact. It was actually in men in testosterone. They were talking about the keto diet and that, you know, some athletes do it because it's good for performance. I wanted, and that was, that's an example, like doctors who aren't in the sports world 
also kind of just believing things. I'm like, the keto diet has been shown again and again to not be good for athletic performance. But yes, so is the keto diet or fasting good for weight loss? Firstly, if someone's thinking about losing weight, I would say, why are you trying to lose weight? Uh, What's the intention behind it? Because, you know, I think focusing on weight loss is often fraught with dangers and I'm much more about um, empowering people to be thinking about health and health-related behaviours because they have a lot lot more evidence for being sustainable and good for our actual overall health. But in terms of the keto diet and fasting, so ketogenic diet for someone, if you haven't heard about it, it's an ultra-low carbohydrate diet that puts you into a state of ketosis and people lose weight because they've cut overall calories. Now, this has been studied superbly where they have people in, you know, labs where we're literally measuring all the different um, like carbon dioxide and chemicals people breathe out and that can help us understand how much, you know, fat they're burning. And when they do diets of equal, like a normal diet that contains carbohydrate versus keto with the same amount of calories, people lose the same amount of weight. So there's nothing magical about keto diet. You're literally just cutting out a complete food group. So people do lose weight. You know, people will go on and on about the benefits of keto, that it helps epilepsy and that it can be used in brain cancers. Yes, it does have some evidence for some very rare types of pediatric epilepsy, but that's like saying everyone should go on chemotherapy because it can help that condition. You know, like, yes, it might be useful in this rare type of pediatric epilepsy, but that doesn't mean everyone should just go on it. And, you know, they've done some animal studies of types of brain cancers that have shown it might, you know, slow the rate of progression in some types of brain tumors. So there's all these exaggerated claims about how the keto diet is just amazing. It's not good for women. Um, carbohydrates, inc- you know, carbohydrate deficiency increases your risk of REDS and functional hypothalamic amenorrhea. There's been some amazing studies from Louise Burke at the AIS looking at low carbohydrate diets, um, including on bone health. And it's been shown to, you know, increase our bone turnover markers, which would end up resulting in low bone density in the long term. So um, it's also, you know, I worry about the ketogenic diet and, you know, a lowish, lower carbohydrate diet can be good for people with maybe polycystic ovarian syndrome or type two diabetes, but you don't need to cut out all carbs. And, you know, we know that there's immediate changes to the gut microbiome, you know, within a few days of a keto diet, we don't have long-term evidence. And, you know, we don't know the impact, the long-term impact of um, this ultra high fat, you know, really high in saturated fats um, diets for our, you know, our vascular health. And, and women need to think about heart disease. I know this is an athlete podcast, but, you know, down the track, the biggest cause of death in women is still heart disease. Um, and, you know, we, 20s and 30s is when you start to get, you know, can get early, you know, signs of atherosclerosis, which is that kind of early coronary artery disease. So we don't have long-term evidence of the impact of keto diets. And people that might have a genetic predisposition to high cholesterol have had, you know, severe coronary artery disease that they've needed to have surgeries in their thirties or forties. And, you know, I've seen someone on a ketogenic diet and their blood was actually like, it was like white. It was the most disgusting thing. I've always wanted to share it on my Instagram, but I can't because of privacy, (laughs) Um, but just disgusting. And they had that, you know, they didn't know it, but that is, you know, a slight genetic high cholesterol problem. So yeah, not good for performance. It increases your risk of um, getting hypothalamic amenorrhea and other complications. And there's a lot of emerging evidence that it's, you know, probably carbohydrate deficiency, which is a big driver of the complications of REDS as well as the overall energy de- deficiency. And we also don't have long-term data on the impacts of it. And we have 
so much evidence that like the Mediterranean diet is got, you know, lower rates of heart disease, diabetes, cancer. So why on earth would we be, you know, trying to do this other diet when we've got so much evidence that that Mediterranean style of eating has so much benefits for our health? So interesting. And I feel so seen right now because I did the keto diet probably about six years ago where I cut out all carbohydrates. Essentially, I cut out carbs because I wanted to lose weight because I thought I was too big. And I ended up putting on five kilos within about six months and losing my period. So just a very simple way for me. It did not work. (laughs) And I think that's a classic example that you went into you lost your period because your body was desperately wanting carbohydrates, but you were still gaining weight. So, and that's what the evidence is showing now that it's that carbohydrate deficiency, which is probably just as significant as the overall energy deficiency for, you know, athletes and that reds type picture. Now I just love carbs. Can't get me away. Uh, the next one. So I'm just going to briefly say, yeah. I'm going to briefly go back. And because there was this fad for a while that like a keto diet is good for athletic performance. Mm-hmm. And the only time it could not be detrimental to athletic performance were if you were completely in a aerobic type zone. So maybe if you were doing an ultra Ironman, it wouldn't be beneficial, but you could maybe have, you know, not a negatively impacted performance because you're not going into any kind of anaerobic needing glucose type, you know, training. But that's a pretty small population and that the evidence has shown that it just might not be negative. So, and there's always, you know, there's always fads. There's always people trying to find the new 1%. And like, no offense to like, you know, triathlon coaches, but, you know, they're not doctors or nutritionists or dietitians or scientists. But of course they might, you know, want to experiment and do different bits and pieces. But yeah, there has been a lot of fads in that performance and training world regarding different types of diets. And unfortunately, keto got a flag for a little while, but hopefully that gone and there's some new other fad. I think the next fad now is wearing a continuous glucose monitor to monitor your training needs, which also works me, but that's a topic for another day. We'll leave that one for another time. (laughs) Um, The next myth comes down to training. The higher the intensity of your training, the better. I feel like you guys could, you guys are the coaches. I feel like you guys could answer these questions. Um, Well, we know for training that, you know, the majority of our performance is based on aerobic endurance training and the VO2 max. And that's where the kilometers and the duration um, is required. And if you do all your training at high intensity, you are going to get injured and not be able to increase your volume. And you can't actually improve your aerobic fitness and your anaerobic at the same time in that, And it's interesting, like they've done studies of, you know, like the ultra endurance cyclists before a big training block, their actual sprint time gets worse after the big training block because they've worked really hard on their aerobic training fitness in that point. So, you know, they will have improved their time over an hour of cycling, but in the actual, you know, maybe a one minute sprint, they've actually got slower. And, you know, we know that, um, and that's because it's, you know, that you're building that aerobic fitness and the base fitness. And in terms of, you know, training and reds, you know, really high intensity exercise is a big impact on our body and we need to recover from it. And, you know, you hear a lot about cortisol being bad and high intensity exercise being bad, um, which, you know, cortisol is a response to the high intensity exercise. It's not the cortisol itself, which is negative. And cortisol helps us train back, you know, train and perform um, and, you know, would die without cortisol. Um, But if we are doing super high intensity exercise, you know, every day, twice a day, our cortisol levels aren't going to come back down and, you know, then let our bodies recover. So 
And you know, that this is something that I've learned from my own training. I used to think like, what? Doing my slow runs really slow. Um, I'm going to forget how to run fast. And, you know, all my times improved once I actually learned about proper training principles and doing, you know, the majority of your work at a more easy, moderate pace. And then, you know, doing those high intensity sessions really hard. Um, And my body did not forget how to run fast. Um, And I actually got a lot better. But, you know, you guys are the experts in this part. But, yes, doing all your... All your training high intensity is just going to be a recipe for injury and increase your risk of going to reds and functional hypothalamic amenorrhea. Mm-hmm. Yeah, it's an easy trap. And I think like the running teams you're part of or like the culture is easy to get sucked into as well. I reckon that's when I've trained too hard is when I've been in groups yeah. where I just want to keep up and then I feel yeah. like fast, And you so love it like- and it's so much fun. And I think that's what's so good about Femi that you have your group runs and they're all just, easy fun casual run so you don't get that competitiveness and it's just so supportive and you know yeah I've never I've never been in anything like it <laughs> it's true it takes the pressure off and it just makes it fun and enjoyable and I think yeah you have to know yourself to know if you can handle those types of situations and I think we've had a whole podcast on it and I know now that I just I need to be mindful of training in groups because I'll just push myself too hard all the time. Yeah. It's great. Oh, I'm exactly the same. I've, and I've learned the hard way. I remember after I got my stress fracture from after my specialist exams and hardly running and then like running all the time, I was like, I probably just need to get one more injury and then I'll stop training like an idiot. And then I did my hamstring. <laughs> and then ever since then, I've been really good at not got injured. Love it. So you had to get injured to learn. I know it's sad, but <laughs> silver lining. It's like when your friends are dating idiots and you're like, oh, I can see he's such a dickhead and he's treating her badly, but she's just going to have to learn through it because she's not going to listen to me. I think injuries are the same. We almost have to like learn the hard way. Definitely. It's so true. Um, okay. One last myth for you, which I think is, yeah, one that still is believed by quite a lot of people. Um, and I know it is dependent on each person, but I should not train hard or cannot perform well on my period. Yeah. So it's interesting, even just the history of periods and, you know, women in a few hundred years ago, I don't know how long ago, but um, when they had their periods, they were made to go and sit in a tent and not be around anyone because it was seen as dirty and impure. And then when their period ended, they're allowed to rejoin society. Um, and I think, you know, there's still a little bit of that, you know, kind of culture coming through regarding periods. And it's this, you know, terrible, dirty thing that we need to hide from the world. You know, everyone is, can remember being in high school PE and, you know, not joining in and secretly whispering, like, I've got my period. Um, but from a physiological perspective, you know, there's no reason why we should not be able to perform well or, you know, exercise on our period. Some people in that first day one or two might have some cramps. Um, they might feel a bit of fatigue and that's normal. And I think that's where it's so important to listen to your body. But days three to six, um, our hormone levels, our bodies have adjusted to the lower hormones because our bodies don't like rapidly changing hormone levels. Um, And that's why, you know, PMS happens. It's that rapid change in hormones. um, And that's also why, you know, perimenopause is hard or after having a baby is hard. It's that rapid change in hormones. Um, Sorry, there's lots of reasons why life is hard after having a baby, not just the change in hormones. um, But that is why you classically see that baby blues around, you know, a few days after birth. Um, But by day three to six of your period, 
Um, your body's adjusted to the change in hormone levels. Your fluid balance um, should, you know, have normalized because you can get some bloating, but all the hormones that control our fluid should have also normalized by around day to three to six. Um, and some women actually feel they train really well on their period. So, yes, there's no reason why not to exercise. And I think it's all about listening to your body um, in the same way that we talked about before. I think there's also been exaggerated messages of like, you know, you should be able to get a PB on your period and there's no reason why you can't train really well. And then it can make some women who don't like training on their period feel like, oh, am I, is there something wrong with me? Um, and it's all about, you know, the individual and listening to your body. Yeah, that's so true. I, I normally feel probably exactly like you said, a bit crappy days one and two, and then I feel amazing. But I had a friend who I used to train with and she would, she said that, the minute she got her period, she felt like she was just unleashed, like this, like yo-yo just would fly and just felt incredible. Wow, so I think, yeah. I know. I was like, oh, damn. <laughs> I wish I felt like that. I've had, I've had a couple of people say the same to me, that they try their best on their period. I'm like, on day one, really? I've got like mad period diarrhea and bloating. <laughs> um, but days, I think days three to six, I feel really good. Yeah. Yeah, me too. Um, awesome. I hope that debunked a few of the myths for you listeners out there. That was awesome, Izzy. I learned a lot. Um, but if you could tell us a bit now about why you're so excited, because Femi Theory is about to launch, but why you got so excited when we asked you to be part of Femi and then also produce Femi Theory and create so much amazing content for everyone who's going to do the course and why you're so passionate about spreading this education to people. Yeah, I think this is just information that's not very well understood. and you know, the menstrual cycle and female hormones and physiology is really complex, you know, um, and that's why there's, you know, people that specialise in this. Um, but even I was at a conference a while ago and, you know, not mentioning names or that there was anything, you know, this person's a sports medicine doctor and they're not a, you know, endocrinologist, but they were talking and they were actually even saying some kind of incorrect information about REDS and about the impact of, you know, certain types of contraception on our bone health. And, this really made me think, gosh, this is not well understood in the sports world. Um, and if there's doctors that are not getting it right, like how on earth is a, a physio or a dietitian or a coach supposed to really understand the impact of, you know, the female body so, um, on, you know, training and health? So I think it's information that is just desperately needed that's really complex and it needs to be broken down in a way that is accessible and easy for people to understand. I think that is an issue in the medical system. They kind of have this arrogance of like, oh, this is too complex. I'm a doctor. You wouldn't understand this, so we won't even bother trying to explain it. And that's crap. <laughs> um, and that's, you know, why, you know, social media has blown up with sometimes some great information but some terrible information because the medical system needs to be better at educating. Um, and, you know, all three of us have had REDS and functional hypothalamic amenorrhea and bad experiences with the healthcare system where we've kind of just been, you know, given the wrong advice. And I think that is, you know, just screams how, you know, important this is and how poorly it's understood. And, you know, there's women that have had, you know, irreversible osteoporosis and, you know, had to stop their training career. So not only, you know, not met their potential, but had long-term health consequences from this information not being well understood. So that's why I'm so excited and to get the information out because I really know it's going to help so many athletes and I'm excited to yeah, make this complex stuff more accessible because yeah, it's, it's um, there's no point having all these interesting research papers and meta-analyses um, if they're not impacting the broader community. 
Yeah, and we're so lucky to have yourselves and the other incredible experts on the team to bring this to light. And just for those people who may have missed our last uh, a few episodes talking about Femi Theory, Femi Theory is an online education course that has been built to educate everybody and anybody, uh, but especially coaches and trainers who are working with female athletes to allow them to feel more empowered and working with those women as well. So it is an online course. It's about seven to eight hours of video content. Uh, you walk away with a workbook as well, and you will walk away with a Fibby Theory accreditation. So the course is launching very, very soon. So stay uh, tuned on our socials to know the exact launch date. But it's a, it's a very incredible step, I think, towards a really bright future for females in sport and any females that do movement. So we're very grateful to have yourself, Izzy, and our other incredible experts working alongside us to bring this to life. Um, throughout your career, where what are some of the, I guess, big like aha moments that you remember that you believe more people should know about? Um, I think the about contracept oral pill not improving bone density in reds and that you need topical estrogen and how many people have been put on the wrong treatment and you know I've heard this on podcasts and you know I've, I've just heard that information be spread that you know you treat that you you know you treat the estrogen deficiency with the pill um, so that was a big one um, other ones I think about the impact of you know progesterone only contraception decreasing bone density and how many women have been put on that Depro-Provir injection for years and years and had, you know, low, and I, I'm treating these ladies now. They're in their 40s and they're in their 20s and 30s and, um, you know, now they've got quite bad osteoporosis. And, yeah, and I think just all the stories I hear, they're the biggest aha moments for me. You know, we had some girls in the, like, the Femi coaching and them being, like, just telling, their, telling us their stories and how much they personally learned from just these little courses we've been doing. So I think those aha moments have been, you know, how desperate this desperately we need to get this information out. So, and then I think, you know, my aha moments when I realized I could combine my passions of medicine and sport and working with young females. And that's still an ongoing aha moment that I feel so privileged to have found this little niche um, and to be able to work with you guys. Yeah, it's only the beginning. I think we're going to go pretty far with it, which is really No, exciting. it's pretty exciting. <laughs> <laughs> it's crazy you say that. I was on the Depro Provera when I was 20, probably 23, 24, probably about two years, and I was running. Yeah, yeah I was running a lot. And, you yeah. know, it's not even just. Yeah, even not in athletes. I, I would never, you know, recommend that progest- that contraception and unless there was absolutely no other options. And it's so interesting, I swear, as females, that's pretty much what we learn about sexual health and our health is like, don't feel pregnant. And this is what you can do to not feel pregnant. And that is the, that's the extent of the conversation. You know, there's nothing more about, you know, our reproductive health or, you know, the impacts of contraception. It's just, and obviously contraception is incredibly, incredibly important. Um, I've recently actually myself decided to go back on the pill um, for contraception because I'm wanting to freeze my eggs later in the year. So I can't do anything more permanent like the IUD or the Implanon. Um, But that's been a very informed, educated choice that I have made. Whereas when, you know, you're 18 or whatever age, it's just like falling pregnant would be the worst thing that could happen to you. Here's a contraception and there's no other discussion. So, Mm -hmm. yeah, it's we need a lot more education, both for the healthcare providers and the individuals. So true. 
and you know you said it before all the a lot of the Femi stories and the ladies who are part of the community reaching out and telling us these stories about you know suffering at the hands of of the medical system or just people that potentially yeah. didn't know um and like you said it's not their fault you know like GPs are expected to know so much and it could it's you know it is really hard to to know everything well but how I think you, I think we can I think we can put some responsibility on the healthcare system as well um, <laughs> that they do need to do better so yeah. like I'm always proud and try and back up because so much of it is communication but we do need to do better by you know females as well Mm-hmm. I definitely agree. But how does how do women find good doctors, and how do they know you know where to look to actually get the help that they need? My first recommendation is do not go to a bulk billing clinic that you see a different doctor every time, because you cannot get continuity. Like if you had an injury, you wouldn't see a different physio every time for the same injury. You know, you'd see the same physio. Um, so one, get a regular doctor that you see and, you know, and you might have to pay and it's hard. Like general practice is like just falling apart at the moment because the model of care is not sustainable. Um, and GPs, they are private practitioners. They work for themselves. So, you know, sorry, this is going a little bit off topic, but, you know, doc, we've had a, we've had a rough few years in the medical industry with COVID and, you know, GPs work for themselves. They have to pay their reception staff, their bills, they're buying all their PPE, every, you know, everything in that practice they're buying. It's not like the hospital that the government pays for. So um, the model of care is not sustainable with if they only bulk bill. Um, and so I think having to see a doctor that you might have to pay, um, but you will get better care. And if you've got that continuity, um, you know, your care will be so much better as well. Then um, I am a big fan of getting referrals from friends you know ask your friends do you have a good gp do some google reviews look at their practice see if they have an interest in women's health usually if you go onto a website you can look at the bios of the doctors um and you know that can be really useful but i would definitely say you know try and see someone with an interest in women's health yeah we are in the background working on you know we have this incredible community of females who are always looking for medical advice or getting medical advice and working with people in the women's health uh, industry so we're trying to bring together a list of uh, medical professionals who we do know are referred yeah. to us from you know our own community so stay tuned on that one for people who are looking for the best of the best in the business so I was just going to say one recommendation I have the if you look at the Australian Menopause Society um, they are doctors they have lists of doctors that specialize in menopause and if you specialize in menopause you're going to specialize in women's health in general so that could also be another resource um, for That's doctors within yeah um, with an interest in you know female health yeah awesome Thanks and I, but I think that's a great resource Lids. Yeah. yeah perfect uh, so if you do have anyone definitely send them through to us on instagram and we'll add them to the list we've got one more question uh, before we get into our quick fire questions this is uh, what is one piece of medical advice that you think would help to feel more confident in our bodies? Medical advice. Really, and this is going to sound really cliche and I sound like a woo-woo person, but, you know, treat your body with love and the things that you do focus on nourishing your body and doing it to, you know, rather than punish your body. So when you, you know, looking at the food we eat, thinking about, you know, what's high in nutrients and what's really going to nourish me and, you know, choosing exercise that our body likes and enjoys and thinking of it as something to support it and nourish it rather than a punishment. And, you know, we can look at the psychology behind that, that if you're thinking something's a punishment or, you know, you're picking a low calorie meal, 
you really have a negative spin on it. And so it feels like a punishment and we don't like doing things that are punishing, but you know, if we're looking at, you know, everything we do in a positive way of supporting and fueling our body, um, you know, that's, you know, builds that positive relationship. And this is a journey I've gone on in my, myself for the last probably five to 10 years. And I'm so much happier and healthier in that positive mindset that we have, you know, with our body and being grateful. And it's really hard to get there. You know, we have grown up with diet magazines and shitty workout advice and, you know, just terrible cultures. You know, I'm sure all of our mums probably went on ridiculous diets when we were young. So we've had, you know, 20 years of, you know, being brainwashed that we need to hate our bodies. And it's not like we can just click and change that overnight. It takes time. Um, I'm a real fan of, you know, intuitive eating. That's not always right for the athletes because sometimes we need to eat more, but um, really trying to work and repair that relationship we have with our body is going to help so many different aspects of our health. And that's not really medical advice. It's um, kind of, well, it's coming advice, from you. So it's medical advice. Is it? yeah, I think that's, <laughs> that's the best medical advice I think you could give because it's something that people can actually do and understand and think about in their day to day. So I think that's like awesome, super helpful. I yeah. promise I'll make the quick fire answers quick. I'm sorry. I keep rambling. <laughs> No, 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 you're fine. Um, if they take a while, that's, that's all good. Um, let's start with quick fire question number one. What is one thing you wish you could turn back time on and do things differently? Not restrict carbohydrates in my early 20s. Yeah. Me too. I think we all agree here. We're all on the same page with that one. That's awesome. Uh, I think I honestly would probably get years of running back um, and even hitting faster times in my 20s if I didn't do that. Uh, the last quick fire question is, what are you most excited about for Femi Theory? It's going to sound cliche, but, you know, the impact it's going to have and how people will respond and the information that may have seemed really complex, they may now understand. Um and you know that we've helped that happen is awesome amazing and we couldn't agree more we are so so excited to bring Femi Theory to life Femi Theory as I said will be launching very very soon so stay tuned on our socials for that one but thank you so much for your time Izzy we are so grateful for you as always and I'm sure the listeners would have taken so much from this conversation so yeah thanks for your time especially when you're on holiday No worries. It's um, my absolute pleasure. I hope I didn't get too sciencey and complex, um, but, you know, people can always reach out to me if there was anything in the podcast that they wanted, you know, clarified as well. Amazing. Thank you. And for all the listeners, if you want to hit us up, you can get us on Instagram at femi.co or you can head to our website, femi.co, and we will tag Dr. Izzy into the show notes as well. So you can head straight to Izzy's Instagram. Uh, She is posting very good content all the time. So I would highly recommend going over and giving her a follow. But thank you for everybody for listening and we will be back in your ears next week. What? <laughs>